Welcome to the Mycelium Network Podcast, a podcast all about early stage web developers and the mentors and teachers that helped them along the way. Hey, Ryan. Welcome to the Mycelium Network Podcast. Hi, Skalk. Thank you. It's a huge pleasure. Um, so I found out from you from, from Dan, I believe, um, who was on one of the many, many, many Slack servers that I'm on. Um, I think it's one of the uh, DevRel ones. He said he was at Turing School for, for a while and he's interacted with some people and he'd like to introduce me to some folks that he thinks I should speak to, you being one of them. And he made a bunch of introductions and you was really quick in getting back to me and just like that, here we are having a conversation. So um, thanks so much for, you know, being so quick on it um, and doing this. I, I really enjoy these conversations and I'm looking forward to this one. Definitely. Thank you for having me. Yeah, Dan, I think I've met Dan actually at the Ruby Boulder meetup and uh, with a new remote work style, I'm always hungry for social interaction. So um, I've, I've been able to make it up to the, the Ruby Boulder meetup uh, as well. I got lucky enough that my Ruby community mentor, Joel Hoxley, he actually uh, lives nearby. So he's the one that introduced me there. And um, that's been one pleasure about living in Denver is just like being able to network and build great connections. So I'm excited to do this. So that's really cool. So without any further ado, please uh, tell us more about yourself, your background, how you came to do what you do and anything else you'd like to share. Yeah, definitely. I, I definitely was on a very uncharted path getting here. Um, I went to UCF in Orlando, Florida for my undergrad, graduated with uh, business management, Was wanted to be an entrepreneur. Uh, shortly after graduating, realized, oh man, I'm just feeling a little young for, uh, for the serious business type world. Um, and at the time, my, one of my best friends who graduated just six months before me, he had a lifelong dream of being a Navy SEAL. So at the time he was in, I was calling him and he was in San Diego running on the beach and, um, just seems, seemed like he had a very exciting and interesting life. And he told me about this program called SWIC, which is a counterpart to the Navy SEALs and Navy Special Warfare. And from there, I started reading and uh, doing research. And uh, then I started working out and um, connecting with the local Orlando network for you know retired uh, operators. And before you know it, I, was, I found myself in a Navy boot camp. Um, I made it through the program. I spent eight years there. And one of the things that uh, I think is so great about the military is, uh, is the GI Bill, the ability to um, have your college education paid for if you go and serve for the country. So um, already having had a college degree, I knew that that only meant that when I went to use that, it was going to be that much more exciting. So that just lived in the back of my head all the time. And um, when I decided to get out of the Navy, I wanted to go to culinary school and just be a badass chef and like maybe start a restaurant after a few years. So I was like, where can I go be a badass? And I was thinking Manhattan. So I enrolled at this culinary institute in Manhattan and I packed up all my bags and sold everything. And at the time I had a girlfriend and we were going to um, like camp our way across the country. So, um, as his common story with my life, something got in the way of that very last minute. Um, so it just so happened that um, a billionaire in the Hamptons needed somebody to do private security and look after his, his like $100 million estate. And he decided to go searching for a veteran for that role. And somehow or another, the email came across my desk and I immediately deleted it because I was like, well, I'm going to culinary school. And that same friend that had now become a Navy SEAL saw the same email and he thought, you know what, my friend Ryan would be great for this job. So he's not realizing that I already got the email, he sends it to me and he goes, you would be awesome for this. So I like paused, I said, hmm, second time receiving the same email. 
And at that point, my girlfriend was absolutely terrified that we were going to go live in a closet in Manhattan while I attempted to take on one of the lowest paying professions probably in the United States. And um, so I called the phone number on it. And surprisingly to me, it actually went to the wife of the the gentleman. And um, she got back to me and said, hey, well, um, the we think we have the role taken care of, but we'll get back to you. Um, and then exactly one week later, she said, when can you fly out? We're having a lot of trouble filling this role. So um, still in the Navy, I get on an airplane and I'm going to meet the first person I, I've ever met that uh, that I know of that has more than a million dollars. And um, so here I am like dressed in full suit. I mean, as nice as I could find my clothes, I dressed up. But I didn't realize the person picking me up was going to be the actual person who already had the job. So I come to the side of the road, uh, or the, at the at, uh, what was it? I think it was at Kennedy Airport, and I try to get in this car that matched the description. And as I'm trying to get in, um, the guy waves me off and starts driving away. And I was like, well, that was awkward. So I get a phone call, and he says, hey, um, have you found the car yet? And I said, yeah, I just tried to get into it. And he goes, oh my, that was you? <laughs> and probably wasn't expecting someone to be in a full suit. <clears throat> so um, I ride out, I uh, get a full tour, I uh, learn about the job, and then I go to Manhattan and meet the family all within about 24 hours before I was on a plane back to San Diego. And uh, I ended up getting offered the job. So I dropped all of my plans, called the Culinary Institute, quit, um, so I ended up in the Hamptons, and then I um, I did that for about three years, and in that process, I had been watching like YouTube videos about sailing, and if you've ever been to the Hamptons, Sag Harbor has the most beautiful sailing scene ever. So I bought, I bought the only sailboat they had for sale in town, um, and just started learning how to sail. Um, eventually, I, I saved up enough money, I quit that job, and I started sailing, and my plan was to sail all the way back around to San Diego. Um, the San Diego part was the, the carrot for my wife because she, uh, she missed San Diego. And um, so I thought it would be an adventure. Um, COVID happened about halfway through that adventure. So um, that, that's when I decided, well, it's time to go use the GI Bill. Um, I enrolled in a welding school. I wanted to stay around the trades. I wanted to uh, work on boats if I could. Um, and I thought, well, I'm already kind of an outdoorsy military type guy. So uh, I'll, uh, I'll go to welding school. And uh, it was in Jacksonville, Florida. So I go to Jacksonville and I'm like, man, uh, my life is about to change a lot. I don't know that I want to live in Jacksonville and weld. <laughs> So in a moment of panic, after I had already enrolled in the school, I start going online and just looking for welding schools in other locations or other schools. And I'm scrolling through the VA website for just for schools in Denver because I had one friend that lived in Denver. I thought, you know, Denver sounds kind of cool. And I'm, I'm getting exhausted. I've been doing this for an hour. I get near the bottom of the list and there's the school that says Turing. And I just thought the name was cool. Literally just uh, like Turing sounds like an interesting word. Let me let me search for this school on the internet. And just like a rabbit hole, I went to the website and it was like try coding. And I started like solving logic puzzles. And I, I like, I was just, I just got, you know, sucked in. And um, within two weeks later, I was like, I got an acceptance letter to Turing. I called the welding school and said, sorry, something came up. And, um, that's, that's how I ended up, uh, as a coder. <laughs> that's fascinating. <clears throat> that's such a, such an interesting life and story. Um, so how long was the sailing trip? How long did that last? Cause I know you, you sent me a link to the, um, Instagram account of that. And I had to scroll through it and there's like a whole bunch of photos. I, I told you in the doc, it gives me very much Kara and Nate vibes. Sure, these two folks that's been traveling the world for like seven years on YouTube that I watch every now and again. Um, so I'm wondering like, how long were you on this adventure? And is there any like things that happened on that, that, that was particularly memorable? 
Yeah, I mean, oh, so many. Um, <laughs> what I mean, what a life experience. Um, so the original uh, really was I mean, quite a financial decision for, for so much of the early like uh, nervousness or anxiety because I thought, well, how much money do I need to have to do this? Like, am I in the middle of my life completely ruining my my financial future or whatever? So I think I had about $150,000 saved up. And I thought to myself, worst case scenario, um, in three years, I, I have nothing but a bunch of skills and a bunch of life experiences and I can start over. And my like thought process has always been, well, you know, a lot of kids graduate college at 22 with no life experience. Um, they're in debt, tons of money, and they, they do fine what if I just did that in my thirties? Um, so that was the thing that ultimately allowed me to just go. Um, and I didn't know I hadn't, I didn't know how long it would take to sail from New York to Virginia, let alone to get through the Panama Canal over to San Diego. Um, so it ended up taking us roughly a year to get to St. Martin. And then by this point, we I mean we were really getting uh, into the social scene and to like we we did the St. Martin Heineken reg, uh, the Heineken regatta in St. Martin. Um, the day or two after that regatta, we'd already made plans and uh, we had been on a boat with guys that were going to be in Antigua for their regatta, and then we went to a music festival in St. Martin. And it was a three or four day long festival. We ended up going on day three of four and we didn't know, but the very next day, everything was going to get shut down for COVID. Um, and that's, I mean, that's really when everything changed that, mm. that very mm. next, you know, um, and yeah, that, that was, that was the, uh, not the end of our journey, but that was the end of our, our ability to go towards, um, San Diego, if you will, because we would have had to go through the Panama Canal. Um, but so what we did decide to do is everyone got a little nervous in St. Martin. You know, hurricane season was going to eventually come. They have a lagoon there, but we, we're, ta we're talking maybe being stuck in St. Martin for a really long time. And I mean, we were lucky in the sense that the U.S. was a thousand miles away and that was easily saleable for us um, going with the trade winds. And, um, there were a lot of people from Germany, from other countries, you know, who that option didn't really exist for them. So we decided, Hey, let's go out to sea. Um, let's head back towards the U S we had a couple friends that we knew that were hiding out in the Bahamas and we thought maybe, maybe we can join. We knew we couldn't legally go into the country. Um, so we started sailing and, um, Seven days in, we're just on the northern side of the Turks and Caicos, and we um, this is the middle of the night. We've got a pretty stiff wind um, coming, uh, coming like right at us, so we're beating, and we have an island that's kind of like right off our our nose, and we have this nice little uh, you know rum line um, going south of the Bahamas. And in the middle of the night, my wife wakes me up and there's just this big old bleep on the radar and it's just coming at us really fast. So she wakes me up and ends up, ends up being the Bohemian uh, def, uh, def, uh, I think Defense Force, um, but it's essentially their like Coast Guard. And uh, they intercepted us and said, hey, you need to turn and go back to the Turks and Caicos. And uh, I was just like, well... <laughs> We can't go back. We didn't come from the Turks and Caicos. They're going to say the same thing to us that you're saying. Like, you can't come in right now because, I mean, this is the first few weeks of the COVID lockdowns. So they're like, all right. Um, I'm like, we're a U.S. flagged vessel. We, we're just going to continue to the U.S. And they're like, all right, well, that's fine. You need to change course and head down to the old Bahama Channel, which runs south on the north side of Cuba. So we, we tack over and we start heading in that direction. But at this point, we've got to... 15 to 20 knots of wind right on the bow and um there's something called a lee shore which is like we have this little uh, i think it's my iguana this little island off of our uh, starboard side and we watch the radar and the defense cutter or he just i mean he races full speed in the other direction and we're getting slowly pushed into this island 
and uh, I'm watching. I'm like, I don't, you know, this is this is not good. So he's gone. I just said we're going to cut back over. We're going to cut back onto the north side, uh, onto the lee side of this island. So we cut back over, and another 12 to 24 hours pass, and you know we see nothing on radar. We can hear the Cuba Cuba um, Coast Guard a little bit on the radio, and um, so our friends are at this most furthest south island, and um, what are called the Ragged Islands. Um, and I mean, there's a little town down there. I think it's called Duncan town with, I mean, it can't be more than a hundred people live on that Island. And, um, so as we approach, we decide to take like a safe Harbor, uh, anchorage for the night, right at the very Southern Island. I mean, anything South of this Island, you're going into Cuba. And, um, so we stay overnight there and, you know, we kind of think, uh, this doesn't feel so bad. We know all, a few of our friends, sailors are about 20 miles to the North and so we start sailing north and um, we see all our friends but on the way we see this uh, bohemian defense cutter and uh, we're like oh no like if that cutter sees us again we could be in big trouble and um, i thought you know what let's just go let's just go anchor we'll talk to our friends and see what they say and um, so we go up there and this started probably one of what will be one of the most like memorable experiences of my life um we ended up staying there. We ended up finding out that um, the coast or the the Bahamas was allowing safe, like safe passage for vessels from other countries that could not go anywhere as long as they agreed not to leave, like they had to drop anchor and they had to stay. So we ended up staying there and creating a private yacht club for three months with uh, some other vessels. We were um, reliant on each other for making water, cooking food, catching fish, and um, we had, uh, I think we had like a still running per day. So we were producing alcohol. Um, and so that was probably the most uh, memorable experience of the sailing journey. That's incredible. Yeah, that's something you'll never forget. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. No money in the world can really buy an experience like that. It's crazy. It's amazing. Um, <laughs> so where do we go from here? Well, um, so as you've mentioned, uh you were in special ops, if I'm correct. Um, and I've listened to a couple of folks um, that was in the Navy SEALs and stuff like that on Rich Roll's podcast. He, he's talked to a couple of them. And uh, one of the themes that always comes up is mindset and um, just how incredibly hard the training is. Uh, and to make it through the boot camp is no, no small feat. Um, and it takes... It takes a lot out of you, so it, and it, it teaches you a lot of things by having to persevere. So I'm wondering, which aspects of your time there and going through the boot camp and the time you spent up to that, um, what aspects of that have you taken with you as you've transitioned into this new career of coding? Like, is there anything that you've you've learned there that's helped you? learn to code, persevere. Um, it's a whole different industry with a whole different set of challenges, but it does also have its own challenges. So I'm curious if there's any like overlap. Yeah, I personally think that there is a lot of overlap. And I also think that, I mean, you hear what, what's called a coding boot camp, right? And anybody who's been through various military programs might naturally be attracted to something that that's called boot camp and the thing that um, going through special operations training the first thing that happens um, is one obviously the selection side of things but after that once you are part of this elite group you have this you see these people accomplish these things with limited resources and, and a crunch timeline at a high level and you really you really take to heart this idea that um, we will typically, we will get, we will use whatever time is given to us to complete whatever task needs to be done. Meaning if someone says that you need to, uh, you know, learn Ruby in two weeks or someone says you need to learn Ruby in one year, in both cases, you're probably going to learn Ruby in some fashion. Um, and like that is the greatest gift that being a special operations operator um, has ever given me. It's just this idea that um, if you give me something to do and give me a timeline, I'll make it happen. I'll make it work and uh, I'll do it better than 
a, a you know a large percentage of the population. What what specific aspects about that is it? Is it just a way of thinking about stuff? Is it a way of breaking down big tasks into smaller things? Is it just having a mindset of, well, this is the time I have. How am I going to use it most effectively? Is it a combination of all those things? Yeah, I would say the first thing that comes to mind is mindset. It's it's are you willing to uh, take the blockers, the distractors, the other things that will typically prohibit somebody else from accelerating at a fast rate? Are you willing and able to look those, whether it be your wife, your kids, your family, your friends, your hobbies, are you willing to look at all of those things and say, you are all second place for this small, you know, typically a small chunk of time. And once you're able to do that, then, then I think the next step is network. You cannot do this stuff alone. You have to bring in the best and the brightest, and you have to be willing to uh, extract the, the nuggets of knowledge and expertise that they have and consume them as fast as you can, but in a meaningful way. Um, and once you're able to, uh, you know, it could be summed up as like a two-step process, but like once you're able to do that, I think that almost any skill can be, you can, you can learn really well and get to a fairly proficient level pretty quickly. But I think most of the failures you see, whether it's in special operations or even like a coding boot camp, anytime you see someone who's set back or failed, they're, they're missing one of those two steps. Either they're not willing to give up some of those distractors or they're not willing to network, communicate, listen to people who are the pros because you you have to just trust that they know what they're doing. Yeah, that's good advice. So with all of that, what was the hardest part of changing careers and learning to code? Uh, for me, definitely it was culture, language. Um, I, I've, you know, when I worked even in private security and the civilian world and then also from the military, I'm in a predominantly um, male um, and a lot of times very testosterone filled male environments where um, your the way that we communicate is very direct um, and the language that we use at times is not language that's fit for a corporate uh, you know professional a work environment that is um, welcoming to to just as much as uh, you know uh, the current corporate climate is in the U.S. and that is something that you need to learn fast when you get out of the Navy and, or the military, especially in special operations, is that you, um, you're you not going to be working with the exact same type of people that you were in the military. And if you want that second step, that second part where communication and reliance on experts, if you want to be fully enveloped in that, you have to change the way you communicate. And so I learned the hard way a few times that um, I can't talk the way that I did in the military. I can't, um, I can't always act the same way. I need to become, a, you know, a civilian and a professional in the Ruby community. Uh, so that was definitely my biggest challenge. And did you? Was there any resources, books, people, anything like that that you used to help with this, or was this just basically? learn the hardware, like you said, like make mistakes, learn from them and move and change based on that. Yeah. I mean, for me, when I say I learned the hard way, I mean that people understood that I was, a, I was well-intentioned. You're going mm -hmm. to have, you're going to have certain individuals with that intention is lost upon them for whatever reason. But in my experience, the large majority of people, they can sense intention and if you start to build a network where you have community and you're getting along well with a large majority, when you make those mistakes, the people around you that you trust and that identify those intentions, they're going to come forward to you. 
whether it be in a private message or behind the scenes to say, hey, um, I know you're a great person. I know you didn't mean to do X, Y, or Z, but just to let you know what you said or the, you know, what you did that didn't really come off the way I know you wanted it to. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I'm sure there are people who take that the wrong way. I have always been extremely thankful for anyone who's reached out to me in any way like that to to just help me grow and help me improve for what, because what I'm trying to accomplish is growth in the coding and the Ruby world um, and become the best at what I'm doing. And if I'm accidentally doing things that are slowing that growth, um, it's great to have people around that can help you with that. Yeah, for sure. So um, how did, did some of this um, play a role during the interview process? I mean, I know the interview process in tech maybe in many industries, but I know tech best. Um, it isn't the most ideal. <laughs> it, it, it can do with some improvement, but I'm, I'm curious if, I've, did you feel like this language barrier played a role during the interview process or was there may, maybe other things about the interview process that was unexpected to you that you, and maybe any lessons you took away from that? Yeah, I, I got ended up getting really lucky with my first job in the sense that it, the company was founded by um, a, a Navy SEAL. So um, we immediately had um, some really common ground and common interests. Um, so I think like a lot of times you can look at like searching for a job in tech from like two perspectives. Is one is the, the company is looking for looking for reasons to, to bring you on. They're looking for, all right, what are the things that this person has that we want? And then in some scenarios, they think that they want you and the interview process is just ensuring that there aren't reasons that they need to start to take a second look at you. So I think in my personal uh, situation, um, I had all of the things on paper that this you know smaller um tech not really a startup but kind of a startup i had all the things on paper they just they needed to make sure there weren't any reasons to um uh, you know not hire me mm-hmm. um and then once maybe you know for anyone else who's looking for a job once they can identify which one of those categories they're in they can begin to tailor uh tailor their approach a little bit um on the tech side of things once you get to to the part where they're just assessing your your technical skills. I mean, the mistake that I made was, was, um, attempting to game the interview. You know, you don't know what they're going to ask you. I, uh, mm-hmm. I, I rehearsed the day before probably 10 different scenarios with a, with a Ruby repo that I, that I thought they could go down and they went a completely different route. So, <laughs> you know, you get, you have a bit of that internal panic when they're asking you to do something that you didn't prepare for. So, mm-hmm. um, so you just cannot mentally go into, I think a tech interview thinking that you know what they're going to ask you to do. Yeah. Why Ruby? You've mentioned that a couple of times. So I'm assuming that you really, you really fell in love with the Ruby language and decided to make that. Is that like your main programming language? Yeah. So I went to Turing uh, School Software and Design, and they have a front-end program and a back-end program. Their back-end mm-hmm. program is Ruby and Ruby on Rails. Um, okay. I didn't know the difference between Java and JavaScript when, my, you know, a month before mm-hmm. I started my coding boot camp. Um, I didn't know really what Ruby was or its reputation or how broadly, you know, adopted it was. So um, I follow, I follow, you know, maybe it's just the military side of me, but, you know, Turing does a really good job of preparing you for the coding bootcamp. And they give you all sorts of resources and uh, directions and ideas. I just went down the list one after another. And um, I did naturally fall in love with the Ruby coding language. And um, since then, I've only continued to enjoy it and grow more appreciation for it. And I've gone to two Ruby conferences in a, in a row. I don't know what other conferences are like. I don't know what the other developers are like, but I love being around the people at the Ruby conferences. Um, I love the community. Um, it's just, uh, I have found no reason to like go 
start learning new languages and exploring other things. What role has um, community played in this, like your current, um, where you are now, but also like maybe the early days? Yeah, I would say that um, my first experience as far as the community was, I, I always kind of had thought of myself as a bit of an introvert. Um, and I and I like math and I like solving weird puzzles. So that's why I went to the back end program. But one of the first things I noticed was that anytime we would uh, team up or pair with the front end of, uh, at Turing was the social crowd. It seemed like the front end uh, group was so much more like flamboyant and interacting and social. Um, and then uh, on the back end program, a little bit more introverted and um, subdued. And I thought, well, it looks like I'm going to be the extrovert of, uh, of back-end programming for a little bit. And, um, I mean, for me, I'm, you know, I'm, I think I'm just old enough now and I have enough life experiences to know that, like, you just need to go out there and network and, and, and look for that common ground and other people. Even if someone's an introvert, they've got things that they like to talk about. They have interests and, um like we're 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 social people and we need social interaction and I, you know i if i if someone asked me to code 40 hours a week with no social interaction i i would i would quit coding today <laughs> yeah for sure i agree with that so um the company you're currently at i had a look at them on linkedin and um on their LinkedIn page, they talk about flexible working hours, a liberal PTO policy. It's a hundred percent remote company. Um, are these some? Are these things that when you look at a company to work for, are these things that's important to you, or did it just by happenstance be that the company that you you found employment had these benefits, or was it more of an intentional intentional thing? Yeah, I would say. I mean. You know, you're you're in you're in a coding boot camp, and you have a bunch of other uh, teammates, and everyone's talking about like, well, what's the first job, and what's it going to be like, or how much money am I going to make? Is it going to be remote? You know, these are all the the butterflies flying around in our stomachs. And um, for me personally, I I thought, well, I already live kind of like an adventurous lifestyle. Um, being fully remote and only work, you know, I'd never had a job where I only worked 40 hours a week. So I thought to myself, that would be pretty cool. Um, and I definitely have never had a job where it's like, um, yeah, if you need time off, you just take it. There's no policy. Just, just do what you need to do. Um, but, uh, I will say now that I'm in it, um, I do appreciate a lot of those things and you, you can't, I think one of the things I've learned is you can't just um, take those policies and take those things and and uh, just go about your day because you won't take the PTO. You won't take advantage of the various um, um, things about, uh, you know, having a fully remote job. You actually need to be conscious. Okay, well, the company says I could take time off whatever I want. Let me make my own policy. The company is fully remote and... Um, people are scattered, scattered all over the country. Okay, that doesn't mean that um, social interaction, uh, coding in person with other people, um, going to conferences is no longer necessary. Like you need to be conscious of like all of that stuff. And that is like the biggest lesson I've learned over this last year with companies that are saying, hey, you're like a smart, great like developer guy, come work for us, we have all of these perks. No, like those perks just mean they're just delegating that level of decision-making to the employee. They're saying, you figure out when you have time off. You figure out how you're going to have professional, you know? And um, so, yeah, that was, you know, first just showing up and working, like, you, you need to plan that stuff for yourself. Yeah, that's an interesting perspective. I've never thought about it like that. That's, that's very interesting. Oh, I read something today that was similar in nature, um, where it was also like, the responsibility is pushed down to you, the employee, to figure out how to do the thing. Um, yeah, it's interesting. It's, I guess for different people, it would be different. Some people would like that kind of unpredictable, like kind of freedom almost. 
of just deciding like, you know what, I feel like I'm going to take next week off. And then you just take next week off. Um, but I can understand that um, for some people, like they need something a little bit more predictable, a little bit more planned, maybe. And so if you if you're not, if it's not dictated by the company, then you dictate it to yourself. I know for me personally, for example, I like deadlines. Like a lot of people will think like, what? No, that's horrible. Like, no, it, it gives you something to strive for. You know what the end point is. So you know, like, there's only three days left. I need to get this done by then. I, I, and sometimes you run into a situation where either employer or if you work with clients, where you ask them, so when do you need this done by? And they're like, well, you know, as soon as you can. And it's like, ah, that's not really the answer I'm looking for. I'm looking for a date. I'm looking for like the end of February or something like that. Is that something that you also would prefer? Yeah, so so far my um my uh, like experience has been I have no experience or expertise in developing or creating software or you know, any of this stuff. And um, I can't even imagine in the first calendar year of my first tech job, like coming into a company and, and dictating what I think might be the best way to deliver a product or a feature. Um, you know, one of the things you said about um, like the difference between being left to your own and, and having some form of structure, uh, you know, the military, one of the closest things that resemble that in the military is working out. Some people just will work out. If you give them no workout schedule, they'll just stay in the best shape of their life. And some people will only work out if you say, hey, you have to show up at 6 a.m. and we're going to work out from 6 to 7. You know, mm -hmm. I don't know personally like what the, the personality traits there or the discipline. Um, I, don't, I just don't know like what causes those differences in people. But I think mm -hmm. as a company, it, part of your culture is probably to um, pass down guidance for both sets of people. And um, the way I've approached it at my company is I've, when I identify things that don't work for me or they, uh, they don't feel comfortable, I, make, I just make suggestions at meetings. I say, hey, like, I think that there's a, an area for just a little bit of a improvement here. And I try not to let that stuff build up to a point where um, – uh, oh, I have this annoyance at work. And then uh, before you know it, you know, six months later, I've been complaining about these 10 things internally or to my wife or to my friends, but the company doesn't have a clue about it. Um, mm -hmm. So I think that um, everybody is going to have little differences in the way they work. Everybody is going to um, perform differently with different rules, whether it be pairing or working alone or meeting up every so often, going to conferences, not going to conferences. I don't think it's a matter of saying, hey, let's take a vote and we'll do it, whatever the, you know, the plurality is. I think it's making the tiny culture adjustments in your company so everyone feels comfortable doing what's best for them. Mm, yeah, makes sense. So on GitHub, I saw you have a couple of projects there. Quite a number of them I saw is based on your time at Turing. Um, but before the call, we did have a, a bit of a conversation about one of the projects that I was going to bring up and you like mentioned that, uh, that one is kind of oldish. I can't quite remember, but you did mention like old software engineers. You do have some side projects that, uh, you're noodling with. So if you want to maybe, uh, take a time, some time and talk about some of these side projects. Yeah, definitely. Um, one, I'll just say like coming out of a coding bootcamp, working with more experienced developers that seem to uh, have this thriving side project business going on. Um, I just shake my head and think how like so often I'll come to five or six o'clock and I've been working on a problem that's been stumping me for days and I'll want to keep working on that problem. Um, and I know from a year or two years of experience now that that's not healthy to just let it because uh, before you know it, it'll be nine o'clock and your, <laughs> your Git status is filled with so much stuff and you're just lost and you have to, you have to nuke the working tree and start all over the next morning anyways. Um, so uh, for me, I just think of, you know, I have a few uh, uh, like problems 
that I experienced throughout my life. And I thought, well, and you know, what can I, I always try to take the newest version of Ruby, the newest version of Rails, and um, try to create little small apps that solve those problems. Um, and like kind of the biggest for me is always um, goes back to my time working in the Hamptons. So I managed um, a very large estate, had three houses on it. And uh, the guy who I had replaced, he had file cabinets with pieces of paper uh, labeled with years. And um, when uh, one of the, you know, water heaters or a furnace or something would go out, I would then spend, you know, two to three hours thumbing through that file cabinet. Okay, what year was this? Let me look at the serial code. This was, uh, okay, this is 2013. This was installed. Let me go to the 2013 file. And then oh, I can't find the receipt from that, you know, that type of stuff. And um, I always, you know, once I started coding, I thought, oh, like, man, having an API where your house, you know, the you know, what paint was used in what room, um, from what, you know, brand or whatever, like all of these things on your computer. Um, so that was kind of, that's kind of the root of what I've always wanted to, to just make something that, that, you know, can make, uh, even if you owned your own house and you had, didn't have a professional, um, and you wanted to do weekend projects, like how, what's, what's a way so that you're at Home Depot and you're like, Oh, I want to get a new mirror for that bathroom. How big is that wall? Um, you know, how, like how, you know, all of these things, like if there was a way to store them. So that's what I've uh, spent my spare hours working on. And then more recently, um, uh, like I've been cooking a lot more and I hate, being at the grocery store and it's like oh, this recipe calls for cinnamon do i have cinnamon like i have no idea and then it's like you buy cinnamon and then you have three cinnamons in your cabinet and what, what do you do throw two of them away <laughs> like <laughs> so i you know i think that uh like and then when i think like super long term like like i don't know in 50 years are we going to have like ro robots in our house that know all these things you know if that's i don't i probably don't think that's going to happen but if it did like our right now our houses are designed for like aesthetics and our cabinets are and a robot can i can't navigate my cabinet so a robot surely is not going to be able to um so that's kind of where my head goes whenever it floats off of work yeah that's interesting so you you like to solve real world problems that you've encountered personally i mean that's a total total solid reason for using code and even that's even a reason enough to learn to code right so like solve some of these little problems that's just maybe maybe nobody out there is going to like build a business to solve this one specific problem but it could make your life a little bit better and in the process you're learning something new so that that's something that i always like to tell um, people new to development to think like uh, I'm not going to build this little project because nobody's going to care about it. I'm going to put it on GitHub. It's going to be there. And then what? Like, mm. And then you solve the problem. You learn something new. That's that's enough already. Like if it so happens that other people have had the same problem and they discover your project and start using it and contributing back to it, that's awesome. And it's wonderful if that happens. But it doesn't matter if that doesn't happen. Just the mm. act of seeing a problem, thinking through it, solving it with code, and then putting it out there, that is that is a great, great learning experience. And you should not do it just because you think nobody else will care about it. It doesn't matter. Like a lot of, I think a lot of open source projects have originated exactly from that. Somebody had a thing, they made it, they decided to just put it out there and somebody stumbled upon it and they were like holy crap i also have this problem this is amazing i just want this little tweak to it because i have this additional need and you're like mm. oh my goodness great yeah it's a pull request yeah this was great i'm merging it in now it's a little bit better so i think that that's a great approach to to thinking about side projects oh yeah 100 percent. in my mind uh and the cool thing about that is you realize like the way software is built is so often it's never the first idea it's the iteration or the growth and like when you think about yeah. the cinnamon problem it's like i'm only thinking in terms of my 600 square foot apartment there's 2600 square foot apartments on my floor and if each person has two cinnamons in their cabinet <laughs> it's like this the floor of this building 
now has 40 can, you know, 40 jars of cinnamon. Is that really yeah. necessary for uh, what's probably a total consumption of like three tablespoons of cinnamon a year? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's that's awesome. So um, you've been, you're pretty new to, to tech, but you've been in many other um, industries. You've noodled with ideas about different industries. As you look at tech right now, um, and I mean, we're in a bit of a precarious time in the tech industry right now with all the layoffs and everything happening, but um, maybe taking that into account or maybe leaving that off, um, what do you see as some of the biggest challenges for the tech industry? Well, I don't know that I'd have the ability to see challenges. I know the things that make me uncomfortable. Um, That's good. And... I would really say that uh, this is probably has to do with more of my personality, my personal trait. I am a, you know, I lived on my sailboat. I had to be completely reliant on myself. I had to have tools. I had to have spare parts. I had to be able to take things apart and put them back together. And a lot of people um, just don't like doing that stuff, right? Like we, they work hard, they have money, and then they pay for people to come fix stuff for them, or they buy new ones and they throw with old stuff away. Um, I have somehow found a way to really enjoy the process of building something, taking something apart, fixing something. Um, so when, you know, you start to code and you can install a new extension on your VS code that, you know, um, guesses the next four lines or how to build your method for you. And then now just recently with this uh, AI, the, was it Ch chat GPT or something like that? And you see, uh, what it's doing, I don't know if it's good or bad. I don't know if it's a challenge. All I know is it makes me uncomfortable. And uh, it makes me, um, you know, sometimes it just makes me want to go back to my sailboat and start sailing away because, uh, you know, I enjoy uh, being very conscious about my life. I enjoy other people who are also conscious. I enjoy building things with other people. And I'd hate to see tech get to an area where it's a bunch of bots building things and, and taking care of stuff. And I could be completely off on that. That's just how, you know, that's just the natural feel that comes to me. Yeah, no, I, I understand that. I think it, I think a lot of people will share that, that feeling with you. Um, I also have a bit of a love-aid relationship with it. I mean, I understand that it's not going anywhere. And I understand that these things are going to improve so fast. It's, it's going to be hard to, to keep up with and even understand how fast these things. Like thinking a year from now, I'm pretty sure the chat GPT that people are using now is going to seem completely archaic and stupid um, at the speed that these things are improving. I do think there's a place where it can help um, maybe in the education world, there's maybe some space for it there. Um, and I do think that there's some mundane things that we do a lot in software that it can kind of predict that you probably, this is what you want to do because you've done it a million times and it can like help you in that sense. But I do, I do totally agree that I would not want the human aspect completely removed from this where it becomes like a factory floor. Um, and you're just spitting out widgets, and most of the widgets are spit out by robots. I 100% share that that feeling, and I and I think as long as we're all conscious of this, um, we'll be able to actively push back when we need to push back, and adopt when we need to adopt. And I think that's where ethics um, comes into the thing: is we need to all be very conscious, and that's why I think people who like stick their head in the ground and say I refuse to look at it. Is, is silly to do that because if you're not aware of what's happening around you, you can't see the, the mistakes. You can't see the potential problems and speak up and say, hey, I'm not so sure if this is like, you know, the old, the old saying about just because you can doesn't mean you should. Um, we need to constantly remind people in this industry that, you know, just pause for a second and just ask yourself, do you want to go down this road? Because once we start going down this road, it's probably just going to snowball. And is it going to end in a place that we all want to be? Um, so I think it's a healthy approach to, to feel that. And I, I think it's great that you are in touch with yourself enough to be, say, to be able to voice that and say, 
it makes me feel uncomfortable because I fear that the humanity will be lost. And then I'd rather get in a sailboat and sail around the world because that's much more human to me than than robots taking over over the world. So yeah, I, I totally get that. Yeah, and, and it seems to connect me back to this human element that I spot so often and I try to catch in my own life, which is, you know, if I could just get to this point or if I could just have this thing or if my thing did just these things, I would finally be at this destination that I need to be at to be fulfilled or to be happy or to be accomplished. And having worked for a billionaire and having been a part of building something that seems like you're in a constant state of, we have to get this thing done. It's, it's a facade. I mean, it's a, it's a mirage. It's the second you get there. And the second you have that thing, no matter how fast it gets built or how perfect it is, that just means that your eyesight shifts to the next thing. And the process is happening again. I don't, I mean, to me, it's not until we start to realize that we're, stuck in this cycle of constantly looking to the next thing that we can change our perspective and say, Hey, should maybe I should just enjoy the fact that I'm building this thing right now, regardless of the speed that I need to build it. I should just enjoy the fact that I'm doing it right now. Yeah, that's healthy outlook. I really like that. This has been a wonderful conversation. I'm so glad I'm going to thank Dan again for this. <laughs> I'm so glad he did this and I'm so glad that you accepted it. Um, in closing, what are you most proud of? Yeah, I would say for me, uh, the thing, you know, f the the thing that always jumps out to me is like, I'm just proud that I got the chance to, to put on the military uniform and serve the country. And, um, you know, so often when people join the military, you know, the large percentage of that is spent in the U.S. And those the, just those small number of years you get to spend overseas deployed actually feeling like you're making a difference in the world um there's there's nothing that can like really compare to to the service like that um and then i would say the other thing is um com the comfort zone is something that's always scared me and just my you know everyone gets into a comfort zone and every time every now and then you, you know you seek out comfort um but just ability to identify maybe at times like in your life, you, you get a little too comfortable and realize that life is not, you know, life is short. So uh, if you're going to spend too much of it in the comfort zone, like you got to get out. So I've, I'm, you know, I've been proud of the fact that I've been able to always identify. And the second I get comfortable, it's time to go get uncomfortable again. Yeah. It's a great philosophy. Well, thanks so much, Ryan. Uh, this has been a lovely conversation. Um, and uh, yeah, thanks again for doing this and um, have a lovely rest of your day and a great weekend. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Mycenaean Network Podcast. If you're not already, please subscribe, store and leave a review for us in your podcatcher of choice. This helps others find us and helps us make a better podcast for you, our listeners. You can also find and follow us on Twitter at Network Mycenaean and join the community on Discord. All the links are available in the show notes.